This is Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella, and our guest, Rich Old, he's a man of many talents. And in particular, this conversation is about conservatorship and his involvement with a very special place on the Palouse called Steptoe Butte. So what's the big deal about Steptoe Butte and what were you involved in? Well, the big deal about Steptoe Butte is that it is one of the largest remaining remnants of the native Palouse. I strictly by accident stumbled across the fact that three quarters of Steptoe Butte was for sale. I and virtually everyone I know always assumed that Steptoe Butte State Park was the entire butte. And that was not the truth. It is only the north slope and a little keyhole slot up to encompass the top. The other three quarters of the butte, importantly the east and west slopes and the south slope, were all in private hands and it was all for sale. Now talk about a million dollar view lot to build your house on. And to me, the idea of having houses on Steptoe Butte or any other type of development was unthinkable. So when I stumbled across the fact that this property was going to be up for sale, I immediately started contacting conservation organizations to see if anyone was interested in conserving it. None of them were. Most of the money in conservation in Washington deals with the west side. There's really very little over here. We don't have much people. We don't have much money. We don't have much power. So no one was interested in stepping up. But one of the organizations said, you know, we got a call from somebody else today about Steptoe Butte with the same type of questions. That person was Kent Bassett. Kent Bassett is an ophthalmologist who lives on the west side, but he's a Pullman High School graduate. I managed to put Kent Bassett together with Ray and Joan Falwell in Pullman, who are conservationists, and between the two of them, they came up with enough money to purchase that portion of Steptoe Butte when it came to public auction. Wow. And we purchased it with the last possible bid. The whole objective of the purchase was to then turn around and sell it to a state agency for the price paid. There was never any intent for anyone to make any money. The intent was to get the land into the hands of a state agency who would protect it. That has been accomplished. That's wonderful. I was afraid, would the state agency say no? There were agencies that were more interested than others, but as very infrequently happens, things went according to plan, and it has been transferred to the state and is now all public property. Rich, what is, uh, besides being this enormous hill, like I'm trying to describe this for the listener, there's other buttes around, but this one just is by itself a little bit. It's pyramidal and it has a myriad of values. This was a holy place to the Native Americans. When the Eurasian immigrants moved here, there was a hotel built on top of Steptoe Butte, so it was a center of social activity. It was then planted, the lower slopes of the butte were planted to orchards, which have now yielded several apple varieties which were thought to be extinct. It is the largest remaining remnant of the Palouse ecosystem. It is a world-renowned hang gliding destination. Photography is the main source of tourist income in Whitman County, and most of that centers on Steptoe Butte. 
Uh, Steptoe Butte pictures have been featured in National Geographic and lots of, of other places. It is a national geological landmark. And anywhere where you have a quartzite butte sticking up through lava, anywhere in the world, that is referred to as a steptoe. It is the archetype for that particular geological feature. So culturally, socially, economically, biologically, geologically, it's a very important place. Can you describe what native Palouse habitat looks like? Yes, it's called the Palouse Prairie for a reason. It isn't treed. The Palouse Prairie consists mostly of broadleaf flowering plants and very, very low shrubs, which we're talking two feet and less. So what you see when you drive up to the top of Steptoe Butte and you look out across the miles and miles and miles and miles of wheat fields all used to be Palouse Prairie, one of the richest and most diverse ecosystems on the face of the planet. But because the Palouse consists of wind-blown soils, there were no rocks and there were no trees, so it was very easy to plow under. So 99.9% of the Palouse has been plowed under. What's really interesting is it depends on your perspective what you're seeing from the top of Steptoe Butte. To me, you're looking at a sea of vast nothingness. You're looking at a place where everything has been removed and replaced with bare dirt and monocultural crops. But to get to the top of Steptoe Butte, you're driving past that original wonder, and most people never even see it. One of the really interesting things about Steptoe Butte compared to Kamiak Butte is Steptoe Butte is pyramidal. Kamiak Butte is a ridge that runs east and west. So there is a south slope and a north slope. The north slope looks like the Moscow Mountains, which are the foothills of the Rockies. The south slope looks like the Snake River Canyon. There's very little Palouse on Kamiak Butte at all. On Steptoe Butte, the north slope looks like the Moscow Mountains. The south slope looks like the Snake River Canyon, but the east and west slopes are true Palouse Prairie. Hmm. And we have rare and endangered plant species that occur in that prairie. And the reason they're rare and endangered is because almost all of the prairie is gone and that's their native habitat. I know this is a silly question, but why should we care about endangered species of plants? Well, the usual argument is, well, they might be medicinal. Ah. They might help save humanity at some time. There is a wonderful quote that says, the ultimate in ignorance is to ask, what's it good for? Yes, because it's so egocentric, centered on the human. Exactly. Things don't exist for our benefit. Oh, but that's what we keep fighting against. So just because what's in it for me, that's not the reason you conserve. Right. You conserve for a greater purpose, which is all of humanity, all of the planet. As botanist on the project, the current species list for Steptoe Butte is over 340 species, which considering that it's a very small unit area of land, that's a tremendous diversity of species, partly because the Palouse is there, but partly because it has all four north, south, east, and west aspects to it, so all the different ecosystems. Wow, I had no idea.
Did you know Traverse Talks is also on YouTube? To watch full episodes with closed captions, search Northwest Public Broadcasting on YouTube and subscribe so you never miss an episode. In your botany work, um, can we hear your credentials? I have a bachelor's and a master's from WSU and a PhD in plant science from the University of Idaho. And I've been doing the plant identifications for the College of Agriculture at Washington State University since 1976, before you were born. <laughs> and I've heard that you can have a dried, squished specimen sent in and you would be able to identify it. Well, what's very interesting is when I first started doing the plant identifications in the 1970s, the process worked like this. The farmer would find a plant in his field that he didn't know what it was. So he'd throw it on the dashboard of his truck until he got back to the house. And then a couple days later when he was in town, he'd drop it off at the county extension agent's office. And the county extension agent wouldn't know what it is either, so he'd leave it on his desk for a while. After a while, he'd put it in a plastic bag and he'd put it in the mail and it would go through the U.S. mail and then it would go to campus and go through the campus mail. And then it would end up at the office and this, my secretary would call me. And by the time I got it, depending on how the plant had been packaged, it was either soup or dust. It was most plants I identified either by the smell or by looking at the hairs from the fragments of the leaves that were left. This was actually my training later on in forensic botany because the fragments I get out of dead people's hair are often much better than the early extension samples that I was <laughs> trained on. Most classic botanical taxonomists need the entire plant in good condition to identify it. That was not my training. Just by luck, I was forced to learn plants from incredibly inadequate specimens. And this has served me very well. Today, the process is completely different. Today, the farmer's standing in his field and he finds a weed that he doesn't know what it is. So he pulls out his cell phone, takes a picture of it, emails it to me. I'm sitting at my computer and I send him back the name of the plant. And I have a beautiful digital image with all the plant parts right in front of me. The process takes no time at all, and I have a better specimen than what I used to deal with. Wow. But that training in inadequate specimens served me very well in forensics. And tell me, how did you get involved with forensics? got involved with forensics because I taught continuing education courses on campus, and one of my students was Paul Katz, who was the chairman of the entomology department, who did a lot of work on forensic entomology and got me interested in the field and I worked on a couple of cases with him and he spread my name around. And then I was at a Weed Science Society of America meeting in Orlando and I met a fascinating gentleman by the name of David Hall who was the premier forensic botanist in the United States. And he was a wonderful man who took me under his wing and he published a book on forensic botany and I'm a co-author. And I believe from my experience that there is forensic evidence that is missed in many, many cases because most law enforcement is not trained in forensic botany. They know a lot more about forensic anthropology and forensic entomology than they do about forensic botany. It's one of the newer fields. Why do you think plants seem to be so ignored? Because they're so unlike us. Can you name me any plants that are named after animals? like tiger lily, dog bane, mare's tail, 
horsetail. You can go on and on and on down the list of plants named after animals, but try and name an animal named after a plant. Mm. There are a few, but they are very, very few. It's almost like this uh, interesting hierarchy of the moving creature. Mm. If you were driving from Pullman to Moscow and any animal ran across the road... I know its name. You would know its name and you would see it. But in the meanwhile, you've driven by a hundred species of plants and you don't know their names and you don't see them. Yeah. And in my relationship with plants, I, I have to admit, it goes back to what's in it for me. It all started because this smelled so beautiful, I wanted more of it for me. So I got to know its name. What is it about plants that attract you? When I went to college, there's a line people say, was alcohol involved? Well, there's another similar line was, was there a girl involved? <laughs> I started dating a girl who was taking a botany class and, and I would go to class with her. And about halfway through, she got bored with it and I got interested in it. <laughs> the next semester I took the class myself. The next semester I taught the class. <gasps> And the next semester, I was making $1,000 a day as an environmental consultant. This is something that just fell into place for me. Oh. And the thing that attracted me was I had friends wherever I went. Wherever I went, I know you, I know you, I know you. Oh. I was always surrounded by things that I knew and that had never been there before. When I went back to the farm I grew up on, I saw things that I had never seen in my entire life. It was like I'd been wearing blinders and suddenly I could see. Or like I had been only seeing in black and white and suddenly I could see color. It was a, a very visual, spiritual experience to actually be able to see plants. And I'm sure that everyone has had this experience if you go to a conference can be hundreds of people there and you'll look around the room and you'll see somebody that you know. You don't actually see the other people. You only see what you know. This is a psychological principle, which interestingly was pointed out by Carl von Linné in Species Plantarum in the 1700s when he said, nomines sinesi peret cogito et rerum. If you do not know the name, your knowledge of the thing perishes. You can't file it in your brain if you don't have a name for it. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. It's an amorphous other. And so the difference between driving down the road and seeing brown and green and being able to see that plant and that plant and that plant and that plant is exhilarating to me. And plants, in fact, are what give you your sense of place on the planet. You can be at a conference in Buffalo, New York, or Orlando, or San Diego. The inside of the motel room looks the same every place, but if you go outside, the plants are different, and the plants are what tells you where you are. Oh, I hope people will be opening up their eyes, learning some names. Common names serve only to distort rather than impart information. Isn't that true? Rich, I was listening to some Native American radio, I wish I could remember the name of the program, but they were discussing trying to find the old names. But what I was left with was the name of this weed that grows by riverbanks makes a rattling sound, and it has a lot of silica in it. And maybe by describing it, you'll know what it is. Do you know what it is? Yeah, equisetum. Yes. And I, I think sometimes the Latin scientific name at least tells you where it is 
family genus. Right. It tells you what it's related to, and it usually has a descriptor in it. Whereas the common names, sometimes you wonder, naked broom rape? That's... <laughs> bastard toad flax? You know, I mean, there's some real doozies, but they don't really impart much useful information to you. How easy was it for you to memorize the Latin names? It's just a word. Mm. And people tell me all the time, Latin names are too long, too hard, too complicated. I'm too stupid and I can't learn them. And I say, you know what? That's what you learned. Somewhere along the line, you had a teacher that taught you that Latin names are too long, too hard, too complicated, and you're too stupid. What's the Latin name for asparagus, Sue Ann? I do not know. It's asparagus. <laughs> That's one of those long, complicated Latin names, but your mama never told you that. She just said the name of this plant is asparagus, so you learned it. It's asparagus. <laughs> That's straight-up Latin. Nice. Yeah, I got to do this with my kids, set them right. If you learn the Latin name for a plant, it's good anywhere in the world. Yes. Think about this. The majority of the people on the face of the planet have to learn a new alphabet to learn scientific Latin names. We get to do them in our alphabet, and they're part of the roots of our language. This is a piece of cake. <laughs> We're the ones that have it easy. <laughs> I like that a lot. At nwpb.org, you can find Northwest news, classical music, jazz, and art and culture stories. There's much to explore on Northwest Public Broadcasting's website, nwpb.org. What's the Latin name for Canadian thistle? Circium, which means thistle, and Arvensi, which means weedy in the cultivated field. So at the point the plant was named, they already knew what it did for a living. My particular field of interest and expertise is weeds, and most people consider weed to be an insult. But it's not. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> Tell me more. Well, what's the definition of a weed, Sue Ann? An unwanted plant. An unwanted plant. So when they're building a logging road on the north side of Dwarshak Reservoir and there's a rare and endangered monkey flower there, they don't want it there. So all of a sudden the rare and endangered plant is a weed by that definition because it's unwanted. Ooh. Well, that doesn't do us much good, does it? When people would send me plants to identify, the question always was, is this a weed? Now, if the definition of a weed is an unwanted plant or a plant out of place, then I have to say, gee, I don't know. Do you want it? Or, gee, I don't know. Was it out of place? So I need some kind of definition of a weed that I can actually answer. If they send me a dandelion, yes, it's a weed. I don't care if you can smoke it, drink it, eat it, whatever. I don't care if you want it. It's still a weed. Being a weed has nothing at all to do do with being wanted or unwanted. So weeds are invasive, aggressive, highly reproductive, mobile, pre-adapted to disturbance, phenotypically plastic, and generally non-native. Now take all those traits and apply it. What organism is the weediest organism on the face of the planet? We are. Yeah, there you go. We're weeds. Everything about our behavior and the way we interact with the environment is the way a weed does it. 
is not an insult. It's the way we interact with our environment. Do you know Calypso bulbosa, the little lady slipper orchid that grows in the shade under the conifers on Moscow Mountain? Yes. I don't care what you do. It's not a weed. It has none of the characteristics of a weed. It's not aggressive. It's not invasive. It's not aggressive. It's not highly reproductive. It's not phenotypically plastic. It isn't very mobile. It's very restricted in, in its environment. It's native. It's not a weed. Dandelion is a Eurasian species, non-native, brought over here on purpose. It's invasive. It's aggressive. It's highly reproductive. It has all the characteristics. There's plants that are weeds and plants that aren't weeds. Is there, on Steptoe Butte, weed control? There is supposed to be weed control, and one of the conditions of the sale of Steptoe Butte, part of the land that was purchased contained the lower set of towers, and one of the conditions for the sale to the state was that the income from that lower set of towers is to be spent on weed control on the Butte. Wow. And Rich, how will they control the weeds? Depends on the species. Canada thistle, you cannot control mechanically. You pull it up, you break off the rhizome. It's Circium arvensi, weedy in the cultivated field because cultivating it just spreads it around. You just get more and more and more of it. Uh, one of the big weeds on Steptoe Butte is dog rose, which is a great big spiny rose bush and there's already been work done up there in chipper shredding it to get rid of the big superstructure and then spraying the shoots that come up um, so we have different approaches for different plants up there yeah and that's what it requires and that's one of the reasons why plant identification is so important i often hear the farmers say to me i don't care what it is how do you kill it you don't know how to kill it until you know what it is yeah, it's life cycles, how it spreads, <clears throat> whether the seeds on top are fake just to get you to cut it off while it made the roots stronger to spread mm -hmm. further. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're smart. The plants are at least. So this is important because it transitions into knowing the plant is important, but I have a feeling most people who are in weed control don't understand the plants or because I've seen people spray along trailheads and it's like you know it's August what, what are you spraying for so can you give us the story of when you were called in because spraying went wrong no <laughs> the story that you're looking for I called it in <gasps> let me give you a little backstory first yeah when I was an undergraduate in botany there was a speaker by the name of Warren Wagner who came to campus and spoke to us about plants that were considered to be extinct. And his message was that some of these plants are not extinct, we just haven't looked hard enough for them. And I got all fired up and I thought, I'm gonna go find myself an extinct plant. So I picked out a plant and I looked it up in the herbarium. Do you know what a herbarium is? It's a library of pressed plants. Yeah. So it tells you where they were collected and through time. So I went back and I looked at all the places this plant had ever been collected and I visited all of them, and they'd all been plowed under because this plant likes rich, deep soils. Well, at this point in time, I was teaching these continuing education courses, and we were coming back from Rock Lake, and we're on our way home, and we're driving along, and all of a sudden, I slammed on the brakes, and the car slid sideways, and I leaped out of the car and went running across the road because there was the plant. 
And it was there because it was on a narrow strip between the highway and the railroad. So it wasn't a big enough patch to have ever been grazed or to ever been plowed. So it was actually protected by those rights of way. And that was the first time that that plant had been found in almost 100 years. So between Pullman and Moscow, the Chipman Trail is on an old rail bed and it parallels the highway. And there was a little strip that had been protected by being between the highway and the railroad and it had been there in all its glory for decades. And I was driving to Moscow one day and it had been sprayed. And there were four wheeler tracks right through the middle of it. So I went to the newspaper and talked about this and eventually ended up contacting WSDOT. Who, well, yeah, we sprayed that because, well, we didn't know what it was. So we thought we should probably kill it. They didn't know what it was because it was native wildflowers that you don't see very much. When it comes to invasive species, we're dealing with an informational vacuum. Mm. Newly invasive weeds are my particular field of interest and expertise. And when I report a new weed, which means we didn't know it was here before, this is the first report, and we then go back and do survey work and do our homework and learn everything we can about it. On average, those plants have been here 30 years and occupy 10,000 acres, which means it's too late to get rid of them by the time we know that they're here because people don't see them because they see brown and green instead of plants. Wow. It really is being exposed to it and working with it so that you could learn and identify it easier. There was, when I was an undergraduate, I don't know if it's there anymore, a sign in the Marion Owen B. Herbarium that says the object is not to name the plant, but to know it. Yeah. Hmm. A lot to learn there. I was talking with a friend who lives out in Albion, and he he has somehow managed to uh, manage his own road, like a long stretch of road. You can have no spray zones on roads in Whitman County. He does spray because he's he's battling the thistle, but it's apparently a very beautiful stretch of road because he knows when to spray and what to spray and where and to spray. where to spray. Yes, and this uh, knowledge I think is because I feel like because it's such a fast-paced society and we just put it in a spray bottle and you just spritz the hell out of it. And then you're good, right? But When I worked for the University of Idaho, I was doing a survey for yellow hawkweed, which was a relatively new invader. So I'm driving all these roads and mapping little patches of yellow hawkweed, and I come up behind this spray rig, and they're spraying. And I'm thinking, now, they're only doing 20 miles an hour, and I've been trying to go faster than that, so maybe they're seeing stuff that I haven't seen. So I pulled over, and I talked to them. I said, have you seen any yellow hawkweed? And they said... No. And they'd just driven by a patch of it. And I said, well, what are you spraying? What do you suppose they said? Roadside. Oh. So if you spray the whole roadside and there's some good plants there and some bad plants there, which ones are you most likely to kill? The good plants. What's most likely to replace the good plants? The bad plants. So then next year you need to put on more spray to do less good. It's a huge downward spiral. Yeah. Which feeds into this idea that all spray is bad. If used correctly, it's a great tool, but it is an overused 
tool. Yeah. So for those who are curious and they see a plant they don't know, what, what do you recommend they do? Take a picture and maybe do an app? Um, some of the apps work on some of the plants, mm -hmm. but there's no confirmation there. Take it to your local county extension agent or your local university. And if you take it to them in Washington and they don't know what it is, they'll send it to me. Wow. It's been incredibly insightful and educational talking to you today, Rich. Thanks for listening to Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella.